Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me, published by Headline and out now. It's a book about the women who define our lives, whether they're in our biological or our logical family, why we would kill for them and why we sometimes want to kill them. It's available from bookshops nationwide and buying it is the best way you can support the podcast. I'm currently immersed in a thrilling tale of criminal activity. It's a novel by one of my favourite writers, Elaine Dundee, and her lesser-known novel, The Injured Party, with the irresistible tagline, How does a nice, well-bred 26-year-old girl find herself in prison? And how does she cope when she finds herself there? It's filling the gaping hole that has been left in my life now that the Anna Delvey trial is over. This week's guest is no stranger to the fictional underworld either. Erin Kelly is critically acclaimed and adored by hundreds of thousands of readers. She's been topping bestseller lists since the publication of her debut, The Poison Tree, which was made into a major ITV drama. Her latest novel, Stone Mothers, is an addictive story about love, lies and secrets. Marianne has managed to build a life that is metaphorical miles from the one she grew up with, but everything will implode if her husband and fragile daughter learn the truth about her relationship with Jesse and the politician who haunts her past. Erin's books are brilliant because she knows that we're not reading for the what, but the why, and as we discovered, she's a reading addict and a true scholar of fiction who reads widely and thoughtfully. We talked about writing ambitions, the failures that lead to success, and being mentored by Ruth Rendell from Beyond the Grave. We started with the pile of books by the bed. So what I love about the the to-be-read pile beside your bed is it reminds me a bit of um, Meghan Markle's old Instagram. I recently found out that she, before she was banned from having social media, she sort of made shelves of books and that looks like an impressive vertical bookcase it's not a shelf of books is it it's just a pile of books on the floor really that uh, you're, you're, you're flattering me it's we haven't got space for a bedside table so there's just this tottering pile of I'm not even sure what the logic is of this certainly there's maybe the top five are books that I'm supposed to be reading to nourish the book that I'm writing at the moment which is one of the many plot strands is about migrants and it's about how we assimilate migrants so you can see that we've got thirst I haven't read them yet and um, thirst by Kerry Hudson astonished me oh no that's the bit about ballet it's about ballerinas and migrants essentially and I am saving these books up for when I have the plot down 
So and these the, are the Ruth Rendell on the very top. Mm. Um, what's that called? Make Death Love Me. Yeah, that looks older than I am. Oh, wow. So, where did it come into your life? Is it your original copy, or did someone give it to you? I think I have very few original copies of the old Rendells, so I can. Um, she is. She is my. I actually think of her as my mentor, which is a really strange thing to say about somebody who is dead and who I never met. But uh, the book of hers that changed everything for me was A Fatal Inversion, which I remember very clearly was dramatised on TV when I was about 14. And I was doing my mock GCSEs. And I remember catching it on a Sunday night on BBC One. And, and then at the end, you know, this is based on the novel by Ruth Rundle, and I remember going to WH Smith's in Romford at nine o'clock the next morning thinking I need to know I need to know how this ends it was such a good adaptation I need to know how it ends and that was kind of the gateway drug really to the kind of books I ended up writing um, but this this one here is Make Death Love Me and she the good thing about loving a writer like Rendell is she's so incredibly prolific that when you get to the end you just start again and it's also amazing to see her evolve as a writer because these early books they're I don't know if this is a Wexford or not I think it's a standalone psychological thriller with a very of its time painted cover of a key and a silk tie with some bullets in it. Um, the new first lady of crime, you can tell how old it is because she was still being referred to as a new writer and because it was £1.25. I love that TLS quote on the front says that she's marvellous. That's not a, a word that you get in a cover quote anymore. I want to bring it back. Marvellous. I know. Who doesn't love a marvellous? I'd be happy with that. Um, yeah, this is a standalone, and she wrote a series of psychological standalone thrillers, which are brilliant, but they are, I mean, they're physically slender books, they're only a couple of hundred pages, and then, this would have been kind of late 70s, I think, and then somewhere about 1987, she just exploded into these books, which she wrote as Barbara Vine, that had a depth and a breadth and a reach, historical reach, you know, the... the if there's anything that categorises the vines, it's the idea that they're partly set in the past and they're about some kind of past buried secret coming forward to intrude upon an ostensibly settled present, which is pretty much the strapline for everything I've ever written. And it's just it's just incredible to hold these tiny little books. It's difficult sometimes to see the seed of what she was going to become as a writer. And she had a 15-year period in the kind of 80s and midway through the 90s where everything she wrote was perfect and I will bang my drum forever that if she hadn't written procedurals if she hadn't made her name with the Wexford books mm. she would have been long listed for the booker every year but if you write a copper uh, that's you off the list that's really interesting mm. the way we pigeonhole things I yeah. think and also that perhaps had she had that kind of that level of regard I don't know whether she would have had the same sort of commercial success or whether you can have the two things, I suppose. We'll, we'll never know. Well, you look, I mean, every now and then somebody pulls it off. So Susan Hill and Kate Atkinson, mm. they seem to be able to straddle both camps. But I think that's because they both cut their teeth on, I'm quoting here, which is great for a <laughs> podcast, I'm air quoting, um, they cut their teeth on literary fiction. So mm. that was when it happens that way around, aren't we lucky that this esteemed literary writer has decided to mm. turn their hand to crime and show the rest of you how it's done? Whereas when a crime writer decides they want to write outside the genre, it's often taken as, well, you can give it a go, love, but, you know, just remember where you came from. So can you remember when you were 14, were you really aware that this was a writer who had sort of crystallised 
the idea of the writing that you might want to go on and do or at that time were you just thinking I love this story I love this voice at the time I was just thinking thank goodness because here is my favorite thing a writer i I don't know with a back catalogue. It's still my favourite thing mm. to, to hit somebody mid-career when you can then chain read. I thought everybody did this and I, I don't think they do. I thought everybody found one book and then if they liked it, just went and kind of hoovered like a termite through the back catalogue. And I do it and so do all my friends, but actually lots of readers don't. So no, I was just overjoyed. Uh, I don't think I was seriously thinking in terms of becoming a writer then. It wouldn't have been discouraged at school, or it wasn't discouraged at school, but it wasn't one of the options set out. It was, uh, I remember doing a a psychometric test that told me I'd be fantastic in the catering or hotelier industries, none of which would remotely play to my strengths. I can't think, second to being an HGV driver, I can't think (laughs) of anything that my skills and temperament are least suited to. No, I just remember kind of falling in love with her books and knowing that I probably would end up working with books. That was where my ambition was as a teenager. Wouldn't it be great one day to get a job in publishing? Probably what I'm going to end up doing is teaching English at a university or at a sixth form college. But I knew, you know, I knew I hoped that somehow I would work with books, but I didn't really dare to have the ambition to write them. I wonder if that's something that's changed a bit now, because I think that it's very, very hard to dream about something if it's not sort of directly in your world, if you don't know anyone who's mm. done it or done anything in, in that field well enough to say, well, how and where and what, and that growing up and discovering there are things that you can do that you didn't even know were jobs. Yeah, and of course quite... now we've got the opposite problem mm. where there is there is an industry devoted to telling you that you can mm. do this. And, you know, if you just give me some money, I'm going to show you how to become a best-selling author. And, that, and authors are accessible in a way that they weren't so now if I were 14 I'd be following people Mm. like me on Instagram and sort of waiting like a meerkat with the paws upturned for the next nugget of writing advice but authors are on the other side of a curtain do you get a lot of people on social media begging for and demanding advice uh no that comes that that comes into my inbox directly Uh. Um, I get, I do often get lots of people who, so I teach quite widely. I teach intimate courses at Curtis Brown Creative and that's 15 of us. That's almost like a master's crushed into half a year. Um, But I teach a lot at The Guardian and I lecture, I do visiting lectureships at various universities and and at festivals. So what I do often find is that somebody I've had a chat with in a signing queue two years ago will either send me an email saying, I've I've worked out what the problem was or the midpoint. And I'll think, oh, Great. <laughs> uh, um, I remember what that was. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, I, if it's a student that I've worked with and spent serious time with, then of course I'm always keen to keep nurturing that book. But I do... It's really hard to give writing advice in the abstract. The only way to really do it properly is to sit down and read a manuscript. Mm. And that's a week's investment of my yeah. time. And I, if all I did was respond to those, then I wouldn't have time to write I've really, really loved what you said about um, Ruth Rendell being a mentor Mm. for you because I think that so often our writing mentors aren't... We don't have to have a conversation with them. We don't have to have that kind... It's not about establishing intimacy. It's about the fact that there are people who've been showing us how to do it and giving us inspiration for years and years. And it's all out there and we've just got to read and absorb. So when I started, so it's 11 years since I started. In fact, it's almost 11 years to the day because I I was a journalist 
um, largely because I had a cousin who was a journalist. And that was, you know, you were saying if you, you can't see it, you can't be it if you can't see yeah. it. Well, I had a cousin who was a journalist and I could see her and I could emulate her career because she was an accessible, friendly person. And she just casually said over family lunch one Sunday, you know, if you've, if you've uh, got a byline in the newspapers, you know, it's easy to get a book deal. So I thought, OK, well, that's one way in. Maybe, maybe I'll do that. And then I got very seduced by journalism. And slowly, slowly, the idea that... I think journalism gave me the permission to understand that actually the idea that people like me could earn a living by words. Mm. And so as I got more confident as a journalist, the idea of writing fiction crept up and thought, you know, you have met authors now. And they they don't kind of exist in this golden bubble. They're just normal people who wrote a book, so you could do this. But then freelance, hustling, I did not have the time and I to to take time away from the paid work. And then I got pregnant with my first child and thought, well, it's now or never, because I had seen babies and they don't let you take an extra four hours a day to write your thriller. So I wrote um I wrote the book that would become The Poison Tree, and it's such a first novel. It's a uh, it's indebted to the secret history, as so many first books are, and to Brideshead Revisited, and a, to Fatal Inversion, actually, and Rebecca as well. And when I was writing, I didn't have the money for a course, and the courses that proliferate now, they weren't really there then. Back then, you either did a kind of evening class at Birkbeck, which was six half hours over a, over one term, and you were in a class with 50 other people, and if you were really lucky, you got to swap notes with the person sitting next to you. Or you did a master's, so you paid thousands and thousands of pounds and you did another degree. Well, neither of those were... Um, I did a couple of the sort of city-lit Birkbeck courses, but they the ratio of student to teacher was just impossible and you're never going to learn anything that way. So I sat down and I took the books I had loved and I took them apart really forensically. So almost um, my brother-in-law isn't a mechanic, but he's fascinated with cars and when he gets an old banger, he gets under the bonnet and he takes it apart and that's how he understands how it works. And I did that with the book. So Ruth Rendell, Nikki French, um, who were another author that I loved to read maybe in my early 20s. And I would look at a book and I would think, okay, so we're a third of the way through and here's what I know and here's what the characters know. And so why would you end that chapter there? And why are you flipping to this viewpoint here? And this character is really well sketched in just a couple of sentences. What is it that they've done here? And I taught myself to write by reading forensically reading as a writer and being completely dispassionate because these were books that I'd already read until they fell apart and that's how I understood so I'd never I've never read or I had at that point never read a how to write book and I still think they're only really useful once you've already written the first draft of a novel mm. because they're more about explaining what you've already done than telling you how to do it. Did you feel differently about these books once you deconstructed them was there any part of you that felt as though you're a bit behind the scenes at Disneyland saying how the sausage was made. Or was it that you knew the story so intimately then that yeah, I'd, I'd, that relationship could only I actually enjoyed it because I'd, I'd taken them as far as I could as a reader. And, you know, it, I think it would be quite exciting to see behind, behind the scenes at mm. Disneyland to, to see, because that's what I wanted. I wanted, mm. to, I wanted to let the light in on magic. So, no, I, I just felt um, grateful, actually. And, that, and you were a yeah. rereader. I'm such a rereader. I love yeah. rereading. Well, what I really love is a book that you can reread every sort of seven or eight years and get something completely different out of it every time. So when I was seven, I read the Narnia books back to back and just read them as a kind of jolly adventure story. And then 
I read them again as a teenager for comfort with an awareness of kind of, okay, so they're... There's something going on here around sort of puberty and a loss of innocence, but not still not quite grasping it, feeling a bit superior to this, my seven-year-old self, but still not really understanding. Reading them again at 21 on the other side of an English literature degree and having read around them and thinking, wow, this is an allegory for Christianity. Reading them again as a slightly more woke 30-year-old and thinking, this is propaganda, this is, you know, <laughs> this is misogyny, this is, this is uh, absolutely shocking. And now again with my kids. share them with your children? Or I'm, if I'm you trying think. to. They're not, um, they're not having it. They have, they have their own authors to mm. discover. And we agree on some books, but there are some authors they just can't be bothered with. Neither of them have shown much interest in Enid Blyton, for which I'm actually grateful because mm. when I did try and read some with my oldest daughter, I realised how turgid they were, actually. And I can't see what... I used to read a blight in a night. I mean, I'd go to the library and come back with an armful and one a night. I'd read until, you know, my, my memories of my mum actually unscrewing the light bulb <laughs> in my spotlight, just because it's midnight, please go to bed. And my 10-year-old is like that now, you know, we find her still reading at 11, 12. Yeah, they're not bothered. It's But I love finding... You know, I have now found new authors through them. I love the Wimpy Kid books... Um, my 10-year-old loves Jacqueline Wilson. I'm not as enamoured as she is, but she reads and she rereads those books. And they are... those Jacqueline Wilson books in particular are having difficult conversations with my children so that I don't have to. Mm. So my 10-year-old writes little stories. You know, she folds A4 paper in half and writes little booklets, and they're her novels. And she was... The one she wrote last week was about a mother and her two daughters becoming homeless after their drunken father beat them now this is something she's got no contact thankfully <laughs> she, she's it's not an example that we've set her but she, there's an understanding in there of very grown-up issues that I've never spoken to her about and that is what Jacqueline Wilson books are doing for her they are teaching her about the world I find them a bit misery memoir actually some of them the relentlessness of certainly the historical ones it's you know, you want to read it's... Angela's Ashes for a bit of light relief or something, but they, they can be a bit bleak. She's a writer I really, really loved when I was little. And I yeah. remember I got Tracy Beaker in my stocking. And I'm sure it's a big sort of spoiler this or not, really. I think everybody knows that, you know, Tracy's sort of fantasising about this, like this fabulous mother who yeah. is, and I think it's obvious to everybody, this is a fantasy and this is an invention. But not, not when I was eight. seven, yeah. you know, I was like, no, no, her mum is coming back for her. And yeah. I think... My parents felt like that, like, um, I loved The Suitcase Kid, you know, very, very, I was born in a very Catholic family, mm. you know, divorce was just a bit like, if, um, God, this is insane, isn't it? Um, also, I shouldn't say God, sorry, God, sorry, mum. Um, <laughs> if I had parents, if I had friends whose parents were divorced, I'd feel really, oh, how am I going to stop my parents from finding out about this? It was all very sort mm. of, you know, weird and moral and mad. But I think it's empathy, isn't it? Of kind of, well... I think I'm not a parent. I can imagine that when you are a parent, you want the world to be perfect for your children for as long as it can be. It's really hard to break the news and sometimes authors do it for you. I think it's so powerful and important when you're a kid to know also kind of how good you've got it, that, you know, lots of people don't have have what you have and the world is made up of so many different people Mm. and that's what books are for, to kind of, Mm. so we can see ourselves and we can see other people. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, and when it, it really lands is when you... Say, no, it doesn't, because that's genuinely what they do. And where where the real magic is, is when you see yourself in somebody in desperate circumstances mm. as well. So when you see that there's kids who have it much worse than you, but they've still got the same concerns, and that's where the... 
a real gold is, I think, for certainly for the Jacqueline Wilson books. What else were you reading as a, as a teen and a young adult? Was it all quite kind of crime and thriller oriented or it's incredibly predictable for this podcast in particular but I am um, I love Judy Bloom. I also really liked Paula Danziger. No one ever talks about Paula Danziger and I think about the cat ate my gym suit all the time. Yeah, well, she was great I think she was probably um well she was as big as Judy Bloom certainly in my school library but yeah. she wrote I feel about like- Body image and crushes. Darker and a little less kind of resolved. Like, I love Judy Bloom to the end of everything, but there was something a little bit more... There was less relief in a Pauline Danziger, wasn't there? It was a bit uncomfortable, but I enjoyed that. Mm. There was a writer I really loved who wrote... I've completely forgotten her name now. I've gone blank. She wrote Stranger With My Face, and I know what you did last summer. Laurie, Lara... Ellen, oh God! I had it. Something Lowry. Lois Lowry. Lois Lowry. Yeah, and I loved her books as well. And they were kind of borderline supernatural. Mm. And then Stephen King, of course. I remember reading Carrie, and then reading nothing but smash hits for about three months afterwards. Because not only it wasn't just that I was scared of Carrie the novel, it was that I was scared of books. Wow! I couldn't pick up a book anymore in case it did to me what Carrie had done. So I just reread and reread old copies of Smash Hits for a couple of months and had to go to the loo with the light on everything. So I was too young to, I shouldn't have been reading it, I was about 13. I suppose if, you, if horror's not going to get you when you're 13, when will it? And I never read anything like that now, I never... What do you think yeah. it was about Carrie? For me, it was the first horror book I'd ever read. I'm just not good with ghosts and jump scares, basically. Even now, I mean, I'm frightened to see Get Out or even as an adult when I saw The Ring. Have you ever seen the original version of The Ring. No, because like you, I'm terrified yeah. of everything. Awful, awful. Watched it casually at a friend's house, thought, how bad will this be? And then had to wake my husband up when I came home because I was so scared. I think it was, I mean, Carrie is a perfect book. And it's, again, it, it bears rereading. There's a lot to be said about puberty and religion and sexuality and the hierarchy of the school system. Yeah, I think Carrie just surprised me. I think I wasn't expecting, I hadn't read anything with that kind of power. And um, and when I when I stopped reading Smash Hits, the next author I discovered was Virginia Andrews. Ah. So it was straight from it was straight from kind of reading about Candy Flip's new twelve inch to Flowers in the Attic, where I'm kind of locked in. And though that was, I remember doing my open study on Flowers in the Attic and Virginia Andrews when I was about fourteen. And I think it was pretty much a plot regurgitation with the final paragraph being this book has themes in it. Uh, <laughs> But they were quite formative as well because they're full-on gothic, those novels. I mean, they are they are now unreadable to me because at a sentence level they are impenetrably bad. I'm not talking about the kind of morality of the theme, which is, you know, they're kind of making incest a bit sexy and that is, you know, that's questionable and the they're incredibly misogynistic. I wasn't thinking any of this when I was 13. I was just caught up in a rollicking story about a mad rich woman in the oh, deep uh, south who... A podcast yeah. friend, Sentimental Garbage. I don't know if you've yes, um, heard um, yeah. Julie Cohen talking Julie to Caroline Cohen, Donahue yeah. about um, Flowers in the Attic. But what I loved so much, and I'd never really thought about that with Virginia Andrews, but they're pure, pure YA, even though the themes are like, you don't want to give this book about shagging siblings to children. It's the way she's got, I think even though everything is unbelievably awful about it, a real kind of respect for the weight of a teenage girl's emotions. I think that is what redeems those books and it's a hell of a redeeming feature. Yeah, and they are also, 
unapologetic they ca- if you I've always said you have to read Flowers in the Attic basically within a year and a half of your first period you're never gonna <laughs> you're never gonna read it at all but at, you know there is a moment in time in which they if it catches you it will absolutely captivate you they're romantic and gothic and dreadful but I loved them and I would I went through the whole Dollenganger series including the prequel which is I think Garden of Shadows which I think is very underrated and they the plot gets more and more convoluted and more and more bonkers and it sort of starts eating itself towards the end and you've got these sort of you know they've got lots of dodgy issues you know the being forced into well being raped by your brother essentially aside they've also got lots of really dodgy issues about sort of racial and genetic purity you know it's not a it's a politically it's so very funny. uncomfortable it's read that now, sort but of, and they were the most. I don't think they quite say, and they were the most Aryan twins anyone ever did see. But there's I that mean, sort of going white beauty the scene where somebody measures their head, isn't it, to yeah, see if they conform to. <laughs> but the vintage cover art, you know, so much is made of how luminously beautiful they are, and they just look like creeping whack. They look like Chucky. You know, know. they're not the most beautiful twins yeah. in the world. I've still got the books downstairs, even though I know oh. I'm never going to reread them. It's a, and it's one of the big regrets of my life that I lent the original I had a first edition where you used to open the cover and they had a little cut out window and you could see if you went in you could see Chris and Kathy in the window and then you could see the sickly anemic twins underneath them when you opened it and I lent it to my friend Harriet when I was about 15 she's still got it Harriet if you're listening we do this quite a bit you know you know what to do you have to give that book back yeah Uh, something that I think is an underrated pleasure maybe it can be amazing to read a book where, you know, as it is with your books, if I may say so, and the plotting so, so taut and the writing is beautiful and you do sort of think, I don't, it feels so, there's so much flow here. I don't know. It's very cleverly done and it's going to be very hard to work out how. But then I do think I really love a sort of Virginia Andrews book where it's clunky as hell and it's really like and he was as angry as an angry angry man and everything's really overwritten and nothing makes sense and it's like Homer Simpson telling a spooky story and it's like and oh and did I mention they were dead the italics the exclamation marks I quite like I find it quite comforting that a book like that can be so beloved and so successful and I think that it's very interesting to think about the power of something beyond you know like we know why I don't know Dickens and Austin are great we know why the you know very sort of literary and acclaimed things are good and I think it's especially interesting now you know when there is sort of so much to read and so many different people reading and I think that for a lot of new writers you do you know you read the things that you're told you quoting again with Mm -hmm. our quotes should read but sometimes reading the things you shouldn't read can be quite liberating yeah, absolutely. Which is, I remember reading the Dollenganger series when I was sitting my university finals because everything that I was reading was text to take apart and deconstruct, even if it was, you know, stuff I was loving. I remember thinking, I just need something for fun and I need something that I know is, you know, by, the, by then, even I'd copped on that I know is feeling slightly awkward about this now. But yeah, I would go back and <laughs> I would... You've got to be seen with one of us. No, just hiding inside a copy of, I don't know. Capture in the Rye. Absolutely, yeah. I don't know why I, that was the first book I plucked out of as proof of something. You'd ne- yeah, actually, you'd never um, fit um, a Virginia Andrews inside a Capture in the Rye. You'd have to like yeah, hollow out the big. Norton Anthology of English Literature <laughs> or something like that to get one of those doorstops in there. Oh, God, the Norton yeah. Anthology of English Literature. My shoulders too. still haven't recovered. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Erin shortly. But now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book so valuable that you wouldn't want to leave it on the passenger seat of your car because a thief would take it before they even thought about nicking the stereo. This week, my Steal is Vigilante by Shelley Harris. Jenny's life isn't quite what she dreamed it might be. It lacks glamour and she's often alienated and confused by her relationship with her teenage daughter. When Jenny has the opportunity to step into a situation and become a real-life superhero, she seizes it and acquires a new secret identity. This is a funny, thrilling human book about womanhood, love, power and vulnerability. And it has a twist that will make you gasp. I was going to read the first couple of chapters before bed and I finished at four in the morning, totally immersed in Jenny's world. That's Vigilante by Shelley Harris, published by Orion and out now. Now back to Erin. Um, you want to have a quick look around my study, but it's going to be a very uncomfortable place to record, so then we'll do the rest in the playroom. This is, uh, there's, again, there's no, um, so I'll just do no a rhyme quick or reason. If description of where we are in Erin's study, which is, uh, your house just smells beautiful. It's in gorgeous candles and every room has a lovely sort of, a lovely fragrance. When people talk about, like, oh, I really love the smell of books, I think this is what they want books to smell like, books and... Roses. ...scented candles. Mm. So this is where... Do you always write here? Most of the time. Um, sometimes, I mean, there, there's three of us in here now and it's cosy. So when the when these walls get a bit much, I go out to write quite a lot. And I, I've, lately I've been writing in the Welcome Library a lot. I went there to research Stone Mothers because they've got a really good... It's a medical library and it's a lot of textbooks, but they've also got a really good history of medicine section. They've got a history of psychiatry books. So I spent a long time 
in there looking up old floor plans of abandoned Victorian hospitals and and I liked it so much in there. I don't think anyone else is writing a novel. They're all studying to be kind of life-saving pioneering surgeons. But, uh, yeah, so I'd sometimes take the laptop in there if I just need a change of scenery. And it's um, it reminds me, actually, of the library at Warwick University, which is where I did my degree. It's just quite a nice, studious place, and something happens to me in there that makes me concentrate on what I'm doing and stop kind of wasting my life on the internet. Or I mean, you can see here that all aspects of family life are bleeding into here. So for some reason, this is the space every morning where I plait my daughter's hair, hence the braid milk and the untangling spray next to a copy of The Best of Carol Ann Duffy. She had a lot to say. Poetry. I do. I tend to read different things depending on which stage I'm at in the writing cycle. So when I'm plotting as I still am at the moment, even though it's been seven months since I started the work in progress, I like to read, not necessarily crime, but anything with a really strong plot. So anything where structure and questions are forefront in my mind, just just because that's the gear that my brain needs to be in. And then I will read quieter books, a lot of short stories and poetry towards the end for the last draft, because that's when I'm polishing sentences and I need to think in a different way mm. about what I'm writing and I kind of don't want plot to intrude then because I've done it yeah. and I don't want anything to come in and undercut what I've already done. Just looking at um, all of your editions and how, um, how very very impressive they all look. Is it, do you feel, do you sort of look at them and think I've done it, I can do it again or do you ever think oh god how did I do that? I yeah, don't think I can latter, do it again. Absolutely. Sometimes I look back on a book and think it doesn't feel like I wrote that. And clearly I did. I'm not the first person to make the comparison with childbirth, but it really, you know, you do forget. And it's only when I come across old notes for a book and realise that actually there was a point when the plot was completely different here. Stone Mothers is um, was originally set in, not in luxury flats from an asylum, but in the estate agent's office where they were selling the flats. Oh, and it was all about oh. the guy selling flats in this place that bears no resemblance to the story that it ended up being and I only found that out because I was putting in a keyword for something else that I needed for my tax went trying to chase an old invoice and that old draft popped up and uh, I actually found that very encouraging because it reminded me that every book has a point at which there's everything to play for and you don't know what you're doing mm. and you're making a complete horlicks of it and really it's only the first the, the last third that's enjoyable when I know where everybody is and what they're doing and why they're doing it because increasingly I find that I've got a great idea for a plot and then I'll write a first draft and I think, this is all fantastic. There is no possibility that any human would act in this way. So then it's finding why they do it. That's where mm. that's increasingly where the challenge is. So you've got this great twist, you've got a really good hook. Why would they do that? And that means a lot of backstory and a lot of research and a lot of thinking about things that are never going to make it into the finished book. But uh, I laugh now when I thought 11 years ago, oh, it'll get easier with every single book. <laughs> And the opposite is true. It sounds it's, a lot like what people say about childbirth. Yeah, yeah. You know, they say write what you know, but eight books in, you can't keep doing that. You have to find new things. So the further away I get from what I know, the more outside stimulus I need. And a lot of that is in the form of pictures. I spent 30 quid on a big book of ballet photos because I I needed to, you know, short of training as a ballerina, there's a limit to what I can gauge through reading and uh, that's been a huge help. Nothing nothing to do with the plot. It's just helped me get into the mind of my narrator as a ballerina. How these people move? How they move, how they dress. There's some backstage things. Um, 
you know, the bloodied rags that they unwind from their toes at the end of every performance. And it's as normal to them as shutting down a computer is to us or making notes on paper. And you just, I'm very interested in what extraordinary things that become extraordinary. I mean, bloodied rags are one example of that. And of course, in the more extreme, it's about when you're writing a thriller, it's about living with being either the victim of the per- or the perpetrator of being a thriller and how we just... It's incredible what human beings can normalise and endlessly interesting, but you have to keep looking to find what isn't normal. Mm. And it's really... E- you, you can't know what you can't know, which is why yeah, increasingly picture books are the way forward. And things go in with a book in the way that they don't... No matter how detailed the photo essay online is, there is still something about turning pages and I'm not you know I'm not a Luddite I read I mean I live live on the internet I read I read on Kindle a lot but there is there is just something about the lack of competition on the printed page Mm. to be in an armchair with a with a great big coffee table art book there's a kind of an enforced stillness it's so true to, to do it on the going. internet. It's almost like going to a gig or something, going to a mosh pit. But I'm just going to read my book now. <laughs> like no, everybody's screaming, everybody's yelling. I do, I'll never forget. Um, I went to university with someone who said that his parents always, both together, eat an apple at exactly seven o'clock at night, and he never ever thought of that as being a weird thing until he went to university. And was like, oh, it's seven o'clock, and no one's, one's eating, eating an apple. <laughs> And I think there are so many things like that, really bizarre rituals and very individual things that, as you say, we normalise mm-hmm. and we never would, you know, think of. And I suppose it's so interesting in families as well, I think, yeah. when that happens. I think everyone's got an imprint, haven't they, of a certain story that they are, they either keep writing again. And it's very difficult to revisit the themes that I know my readers respond to without revisiting the books. But I do find that I haven't repeated the plots, I don't think, but there are characters who suddenly turn up and I'm like, well, hello, you. You know, I wonder which of my formative people you are so turning up So there's an element of the multiverse. Yeah, there must be. There are, there are a certain... It's almost as though there is a, there's a certain maze inside my... You know, my neural pathways are locked into a certain way of thinking and I have to try quite hard to not veer too far away from them. It's really oh, difficult. You kind of, The kind of tension between staying on brand and there's some more air quotes coming here the tension between staying on brand and and stretching and you know mm. you want to be a bit different because nobody wants to read the same book every time but too different and readers don't respond that well and neither do publishers it's uh and yet in an ideal world you would be writing in a bubble where there was no awareness of the market and of course how can you be online promoting yourself all the time mm. and not know what's happening in the market and not see headlines coming in from the bookseller and chatting to other writers online and hearing that a book I love has been knocked back by a dozen publishers all over the world because it's off-brand for this author and they want something else. It's, it's, a, it's a bit dance like no one's watching, but that's impossible to do with books. Do you find a way of, like, in a first draft, do you really try to just focus on that story rather than how it will be read? Or is that always in the back of your mind? You are a writer working in a hyper-connected world. No, the, for the first draft, you have to just make the story work. And then what will happen in the subsequent drafts? And I don't know how many I do. It's different for each book. I mean, it's either one or a hundred. I'm, ne- I'm never sure at which point you know that you have a complete draft and you're starting because I don't write chronologically. I just write scenes that I think are interesting and then I try and find a way to connect them in the, in the way that raises the most questions for the reader. So I suppose, yeah, in that sense, in the sense that I'm trying to make it as suspenseful as possible... Yeah, I do think of the reader. And then I suppose 
towards the end, that's when the reader's voice is there. You know, I love this about one book. I love that. So I can think of when I was writing He Said, She Said, I remember playing up elements of the kind of toxic friendship between two women because that was before He Said, She Said, The Poison Tree was the book I was known for. And readers responded so much to that sort of very young female friendship and the way it grew and the, the distrust between the two women. So I I drew that to the fore because I knew people liked it and I, I was very aware of how they'd reacted to the twist in The Burning Air. So I made sure, I didn't make sure, but when it turned out that a similar twist was coming two thirds of the way through, I was like, yeah, this is the right place for that to happen. I, I mean, it's I think it's bad manners to ignore your readers. You're asking them to pay anything up to 13 quid for a book. You You have to be aware that there is a contract that I am going to create as much suspense for you as possible and I hope in in the middle of that I'm also going to give you some kind of emotional heft to the book that makes it stay with you after the twists and the turns have been revealed. I suppose it's like any job isn't it where you do something and someone comes and they're like well this this works and this doesn't work and you're going to keep refining that and keep using that information to mm-hmm. And that is always going to have a bearing on the way you did it. If, you know, anyone in any line of work say, no, 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 <laughs> I'm going to ignore you, I'm going to keep doing it, I'm going to do yeah. this complete other thing. I know you asked me to make a table, but I am going to make an aeroplane. You wouldn't be employed for long. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. And, you know, some, not everybody stays the course. And not always through their own fault, mm-hmm. but um, something that was incredibly fashionable and in demand in the market won't be by the time you've written your next book, which is actually why I always say to emerging writers don't write to the market Mm. because if I had written to the market when I wrote my first novel it would have been vampires or erotica or some blend of the two that's what I would have done if I wanted a sure thing but it's a long game by the sexy vampires or the werewolves you know there was a lot of there was you know we were still in kind of twilight fever and um that was my life at bliss because I edited the books page and every day more than once a day I'd get a call saying I've got a book for you. And we're like, is it about vampires? No, it's a completely different book. It's about werewolves. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's where I would have been. But I wrote what, at the time, you couldn't get arrested with a psychological thriller in my first book. It was rejected in the first round of publishers because they said, so this was pre-Gone Girl and Before I Go to Sleep and The Girl on the Train and all those books that have made the genre hugely popular. But they all said, well, we don't know what to do with it. It's kind of, it's kind of crime because there's a murder mystery, but... Uh, and this is incredibly patronising when you actually meet crime readers and realise that they, they're not all these kind of hobbits who only come out of the ghetto for books with a, a smoking gun and a rose covered in blood on the cover. And um, they said, well, it's too well written for crime, so we can't sell you that way. And it's kind of like women's fiction because there's a love story and a female friendship, but we can't sell you as women's fiction because of the dead bodies. And it's you, you write very well, but we can't sell you as literary fiction because of the plot. And then I went away and reworked it. And then when we came back with it six or seven months later... It went to auction and they were all saying, oh, wow, it's crime fiction for women. It's it's a literary fiction for people who like a plot. So the re- all the reasons they'd rejected it, they now wanted it, which is just your great introduction to publishing. No one knows anything You're for sure. In it. And it shifts. Good. It shifts constantly. And shifting fashions doesn't really bother me because this, I will be here doing it. And I know it's a wheel and some books work and some books don't land, don't get the same and reception. Sure but you're at a point now where people follow you. People are yeah, really excited to read them. No, you know, you and anybody can mm. find themselves back. But what I mean is, I will sit out the trend because what you what you do have at the moment is um, a saturated market, mm. and there's a lot of books like mine, and it's it's harder and harder to be seen. But I reckon in about five years that will be quieter, mm. 
and it will be who knows whether uplit will last the course. So there'll be something something else again, or we might all just be, It'll be living under a tarpaulin. I don't know. Once more, <laughs> living under a tarpaulin, and nobody can read or write anything anymore because society's collapsed. On fire. Books yeah. are fuel now. Goodness knows what. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You can't really burn a Kindle. It hasn't got the same calorific value as a, <laughs> as a library of books. On that cheery note, should we go <laughs> look at some more? Oh, the bathroom is. Um, Orange penguins and short stories. Oh, well, this is a beautiful bathroom as well. Thank you. So, oh, sorry, I can't see very well. That's a high shelf. It's um, a high shelf. So I've got um, I've got a couple of shelves of orange penguins downstairs oh, as well. Graham Greene, Andrea Newman. I love Andrea Newman and no one ever no has No one else her. ever knows about Andrea Newman. So these are the ones, um, they're not my least favourite, but uh, the ones downstairs are um, my collectible Evelyn Wars. Um, these are the ones that I don't mind if they get a tiny bit steam damaged uh. in the showers. I mean, you can see by the state of them all that I'm not too precious. So we've got a bit of... Andrea Newman is... Um, so she was a screenwriter and an author. I think she's still alive. And she, I think Bokeh of Barbed Wire is the, yes. is the one that she's most famous for. But I saw as a young woman on TV, again, an example of how television can be a, a gateway to a certain author. I saw something called A Sense of Guilt in which Trevor Eve had an affair with his friend's daughters, who at the time probably wasn't more than a couple of years Is older than I am. who's in the adaptation of The Chamomile Lawn? No, um, that was... Well, maybe, well, I don't think so, because I've, I've, I keep tabs on Trevor, and I think I'd have remembered. <laughs> um, uh, and she, I mean, her books would be very fashionable now, actually. Um, so she writes books about a world that I found really entrancing, which was basically middle-class people in Hampstead, all permanently shit-faced if you listen there isn't a single page that isn't punctuated by somebody pouring themselves a stiff gin and having a fag and then going off to sleep with their best friend's wife or something but there's sort of of boho circles in the late 70s early 80s all painting and and um you know dusty flower the only one i can really remember is is either is either two into three won't go or a share of the world and i'd have to google it but it's about they're all um, quite interchangeable they're at university And it's the girl who's slightly more bookish and she's got a very sort of racy, sexy best mate and there's a bit of partner swapping, I think. I think that's a share of the world. Might be two into three rank goes about a teenage hitchhiker. I mean, once again, these are all, um, you know, they wouldn't they wouldn't pass the Twitter test, I don't think. There would be an outcry. <laughs> or they, the Bechdel know, test. I know, they are, they are one big problematic fave. <laughs> but, yeah, so there's Andrew Newman's up there um, and there's poetry and short stories just because sometimes you're only in the bath for 20 minutes and who's got time to commit to a novel? So we've got... Um, I like that you yeah. said in the bath. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the other. Well, thanks. Yeah. Everyone might read. Oh, let's be, let's be, uh, let's be really yeah, on the loo. Um, so we've got a bit of Daisy Johnson, Helen Simpson and... That's nice, the original Daisy Johnson, fan, pre, pre-booker. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, because Fenn's short stories and it's magic. And it's lovely. I loved Fenn because increasingly I want to read something I could never have written. And some books I like. So Andrea Newman, who's up there, I love because it's what I do and she does it so well. But also, I, 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 and I can kind of enjoy hers with impunity now because they're, they're um, period pieces now. Mm. You know, not, uh, not all, all her characters would have died of liver failure probably <laughs> within, within a couple of years of the 90s starting. But they're just very enjoyable and a slightly, and a different set of morals as well. Mm. Um, but something, so a trib and fen, I couldn't write those books. And so it's... What's a trib? A trib is... It's astonishing. It's a book of short stories and they are, they're almost poetry and they're almost surrealism. And it's a set of short stories and they're about language and words. 
And so I think the first story is about a woman who is losing her words. I can't remember, is it aphasia? Where your words vanish from you and it's about how she can't tell her partner she loves her anymore. I can't do it justice. I would urge everybody oh, who's God, got those. That's heartbreaking. No, they are heartbreaking and they're absolutely brilliant. But it's, a trib is, I guess it's Ellie or Ely Williams. Um, Cock Foster's is Helen Simpson, who was a big thing in the 90s with her, yeah, right, get a life and just writes really good little vignettes about women. Yeah, that's why they're here. A little bit of transportation in the bathroom. Or on the loo. Excellent. We've never had bath reading chat, and I love reading in the bath. Yeah. I'm really happy to. In fact, I think I read some stone mothers in the bath. Did you? Yes, which is fine. It was the proof, so that it's, it doesn't matter if it gets a little bit. Um, I'm very careful with it. But... Here, here is the I'm afraid this room is the opposite of a curated shelfie. This is. Um, I love this I don't know room. Where so it's magnificently chaos. pink. I see well done awards. I see a big map. It's illustrated. There's lots of art here. So is this like a family room? This is the kids. Well, it was originally designed to be. Uh, so it's got a. It's a garage essentially, and it's got a couple of kids' IKEA desks, and it was supposed to be where they uh, did their homework. But they can't concentrate here because all the fun stuff. It's got some number charts on the wall, but the, the shelves themselves are once again cluttered with. Uh, a ceramic self-painted money box and a uh, and a guillotine and a Super Mario that came with a Happy I Meal. I love these. Are they ponies that have been? These are my little ponies melted. done in um, hammer beads. That's what they're called yeah. when you put the stuff on the back and you iron them, yeah, and they all glue you together. Make a picture on a pegboard and then you iron them. Uh, that sounds like it could be the next colouring. Well, you know, soothing activities for adults. Yeah, they're not soothing no. for the adults. <laughs> they're, they're quite stressful for the adults, actually. So this room is... At, I, I think this the is... The, got under your feet, then. These, are the, these are the long-term books. This is the first uh, set of them. bookshelves that we unpacked when we moved in two and a half years ago. So this is where all the, this is where all the classics I haven't read in a good decade uh, reside. So I see Dickens and Bronte and Elliot. Also a book I'm very curious about because I've got a proof and I keep trying to get to it and it keeps running away from me. Expectations by Anna Hope, which is coming out in July. People have raved about that I book. I love it. It is. So Anna Hope wrote The Ballroom, came out a year and a half ago. And I set in a Victorian asylum, or Edwardian actually, it's set in the Edwardian times and it's about a woman who has an unbearable life and is essentially committed for breaking a window, which is only a reasonable human response. And I really admire and envy authors who... So she could have she could have come back with another historical book, but she's written a book about three friends who we see them in the beginning in the 90s and then it brings us up to the present day. And it's about what happens to friendship when life doesn't go as planned. And it, if it reminds me of anything, it's of normal people. She does for friendship what ah. Sally Rooney did for that very youthful relationship. So it's about how you survive when your friendships, which you believe, which a lot of, well, as you, I mean, you've written about it so well, um, when your female friendships are the sustaining constant in your life, what do you do when you have varying levels of success with motherhood, with career, and just with basic communications? It's, it's beautiful. It's, um, and it's just the right size as well. I didn't want it to end, but when it did end, I remember thinking that that cuts off in exactly the right place. It's much, much, much better. Like a film, isn't it? To have that slight sort of, ooh. This show then... always leave them wanting more. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about a book I just saw. Um, Sarah by JT Leroy. Um, 
Producer Dale and I saw the film about JT Leroy, also, mm. and I'm fascinated yeah. by that story. I read it at the time. I haven't gone back to it since. Um, I also read The Heart is Deceitful, Above All Things. The year was 2000. So I would have been working as a journalist and and loved it at the time. I do love a bit of tawdry Americana. And that's what this is a slice of. I wonder, I wonder what my feeling would be going back knowing now. I wonder if I loved it so much. I think this might have even been... I was um, in 2000, I was working at Cosmopolitan magazine and I was the books reviewer there. But, yeah, I do remember loving it. When you were doing that job, did you try very hard to be quite even-handed or did you find yourself kind of choosing the things that you liked? Do you know what? It was so chaotically done and there was... um, My system was so poor that... And this is a shaming admission, but I don't know. In some ways, you wonder how much has changed. Um, I inherited the job with no notice. I only did it for four months. And I would end up usually with five or six books that I knew were going to be scheduled for release in the month appropriate and I certainly never had the problem of books and books and books and so many coming out that I didn't know what was what but yeah we used to receive books very sporadically we'd often would often receive books because we had such insanely long lead times then six or seven weeks and of course now it's now it's um I don't know I don't know how yeah can you do it by lunchtime and I don't know how the monthlies do it but I do um and I also of course you know you're catering to the cosmopolitan reader, and I do remember sometimes thinking, you know, I think we could credit them with a bit more intelligence. That's almost well, unbelievably, I can't believe I'm saying this. Nearly twenty years ago, isn't yeah. it? The year two thousand. Yeah, but we, I remember the pressure would always be on find four or five or six books which are about finding a boyfriend and about careers. So boyfriends and careers. That was what we said. That it was. It was in Bridget Jones' fever. So it's, yeah, mm. find me six ersatz Bridget Jones per month. And I would occasionally put forward a crime novel and gently be told that that's not really what our readers want, which isn't, which I know now to be bollocks. This is, um, this is my, that is one the cover's almost missing. This Rivals. is Rivals by Julie Cooper. Now, there is some part of my brain, this is an iconic cover, and it's of a man holding a reel of film. He's wearing a pinstripe suit and you can see his collar. And a woman is treading on his the back of his hand and she is wearing a red stiletto shoe. And somewhere in my mind, this is still an archetypal lady's shoe. <laughs> when I first read this, I was I like, this is mean. what this is a lady's shoe. This is what ladies wear. This I is was a- thinking yeah. as well how funny it is that now, whenever that was made, I was thinking it's a court shoe. And it's like clearly it was meant to be a very sexy stiletto and how fashions have changed and I mean, what it's, was it's what you know when a sexy. knees are gone, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's not now that a high. bit like that's not but, you know, at the time, that was the denier creed in sexy shoes. And it now, really not so much. Um, I absolutely adore this book. It's my favourite. And I love it so Jenny. much that I haven't read it for a long time. Not just because it might not survive another reading. I mean, the cover is two, only two thirds of it's left. Um, but because I want to... I haven't read it in about 10 years and I want to keep it sacred I don't want to read it and do what I can't help doing which is editing and picking things out even though it's my absolute ultimate comfort read and also I don't need to I could borderline recite it for you as well (laughs) it's imprinted so clearly on my mind I absolutely I I read rivals every year and I think in a way that helps that there there are no no scary shocks there are definitely again it is a bit of a problematic fave in places, but it's. I'm not going to kind of 
pick it up after too long I mean, a gap and think oh no I, it's everything i hate about the world really rivals i hope you know I'd, I'd quite like to smash the system especially when you see what um you know english public school boys have done to the country in the last sort of five years but um it is just irresistible it is glamour and romping in the shires and love it yeah. And is it interesting field? to this? I can't think of a single other author now. Uh, the Spine, which is actually, for a start, it's wide enough mm. to accommodate a full author photo. <laughs> but Jilly's very gorgeous photo is emblazoned on the spine. It's and I like can't a think of a glamorous another. passport photo, isn't it? it really that is, kind of yeah. rectangle. Jilly's. Yeah. Is she on uh, the side there as well? No, oh, Stephen yeah, Fry's Stephen on one. Fry. Okay, and no. that's such an authorly, like, resting his chin. Yeah. Oh, and Shakespeare, hands. I suppose, but he's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> Shakespeare's passport photo. Yeah. I love it. But I think what I love about Rivals is that Jilly's such a fan of courage in women. And it's mm. this, like, you know, that you can't be brave unless you're quite frightened first. And yeah. I think that's what, something that I didn't, feel on the first reading that I really feel now. Everything about Rivals is a masterclass in character and there is a TV executive called Cameron Cook who um who she feels, only feels real when she sees her name appear in the credits on screen. But she's her vulnerability is brought out so well and on the surface she's a kind of she's a bit of a ball breaker and she is quite unsympathetic and she rubs everybody up the wrong way she's and she's also, got short hair. She's um, the sort of like Peabody award winning superstar who's produced about 50 billion documentaries and she's 24 <laughs> well she did have a very early start in life because she was on the streets remember so oh, she, yes, she right, didn't right. she didn't waste any time fanning Terrible, about at university her lesbian mother and yeah, her I mother's horrible partner that, that was in itself a traumatizing event but um but Cameron is really beautifully drawn in it I suppose it's a masterclass in how vulnerability can be a redeeming feature as much as strength and also um patrick o'hara who is the object of her love i formed a mental image of him when i was reading that book and i think i married my husband partly because he looked a bit like the way i imagined patrick in rivals very briefly i can sort of i can see where you're going with that a bit like andrea newman one of the things i adore the most about a jilly book is the endless drinking it's fantastic isn't it i mean that's that's a more than the sex, actually. That's the true mm. uh, vicarious pleasure, I think, of reading these books. But everybody is absolutely hammered all the time. We went through a phase of watching old 70s TV shows. And I, don't, I mean, I, don't, I can't remember my parents drinking that much back in the day. But even in 4pm um, children's BBC show from 1982, you never see a parent without a glass of wine on the globe. <laughs> a glass, or, and more often than not, it's spirits, isn't it? I've never come home and poured myself two fingers of anything from a crystal decanter and I feel it's a real failure of my adult life that that's not how I operate. No, I, I think I believe I drink a lot more champagne than I do. <laughs> not even Prosecco. I thought everybody was like, well, it's, you know, it's Friday, we'll get some champagne in. Like, well, that doesn't happen yeah. to me so much now. That was my idea of adulthood, that was everybody would be in a pastel boiler suit <laughs> with frosted highlights and the lady's shoe. All drinking and having it. It's just not... I mean, I'm quite glad. It, in retrospect, it's very, very stressful way to conduct your life. And also, I don't know how these women all stayed so skeletal on, um, you know, yeah. on... Uh, Seven litres of white wine a day. Yeah. And nobody was like, oh, I have to... I can't do anything for a week. I'm bedridden with a hangover. Yeah. And nobody ever says, do you think, do you think maybe you shouldn't have that? <laughs> <laughs> do you think maybe, you know... Do you yeah. think you could do a, 
Could you write something now, set then as a period piece? Do you think enough time has passed? Funnily enough, I've got um, the book after the one I'm doing now about the dancer is set not far from that era. And I think I want to, I want to write about my parents' generation when they were young. Ah. Because I used, I used to think my mum was the most glamorous woman alive in her pastel boiler suit and her um, die-cut peep-toe sandals. And, um, yeah, it's one of the few periods I hadn't revisited, so sort of mid-80s, late-70s as well, I'm really interested by. Do you think that far ahead? Never, normally, actually. I've had a really happy experience this time. And it was on a train from Edinburgh to London, which is, was the J.K. Rowling experience. I read a feature in, I think it was the Guardian Books, and I don't want to say anything else in case I jinx it, but I, I thought, oh, she's had an interesting life. And by the time I came to London, I had a plot. Oh. And I've never had that before. I always have this moment of... I've always got something cloudy on the horizon, but I am... The problem is I've just got to write this one first. And it's the temptation is to junk the difficult book mm. now and to turn to the one that's got its arms open. But of course, it's just, it's distracted girlfriend, isn't it? Yes. It's not, the grass <laughs> is not going to be as green as I think it is. And it will end up being just as difficult as the one that I'm doing now. I wonder if that's the only motivation sometimes for finishing something is because it's the excitement about the next thing that's carrying it, you through. It does help. And when I finished Stone Mothers, I didn't have another book in mind, which I think is why it's taken me so long to get the um, ball rolling. Uh, and that was terrifying because there's always been some kind of woozy destination on the horizon, but it's a real treat. I'm very excited at the thought of having a book ready to go when I finish. Huge thanks to Erin. Find her on Twitter at Ms Erin Kelly and on Instagram at Erin Jelly. Stone Mothers truly is a must-read. Erin is gifted when it comes to making you consider the humanity of complicated people and altering our perspectives. It's a book full of depth and darkness, but it's ultimately hugely uplifting. I'm Daisy Buchanan, and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, my book-bosomed buddies. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at TheDaisyBee. Say hello, suggest some guests, and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guest and a list of the books they talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next time. For now, some words of comfort for anyone who is wrestling with their to-read pile, courtesy of the science writer David Quayman. A good book, resting unopened in its slot on a shelf, full of majestic potentiality, is the most comforting sort of intellectual wallpaper. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.